Good morning. Ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward to receive the morning's tithes and offerings. Uh, as Molly alluded to, and as you may have heard when you came in, Res Kids, you guys are sticking with us today. Amen? Just kidding. Um, it's the fifth Sunday. Every fifth Sunday, we invite the Res Kids to stay in here because uh, I, I think it's an important reminder throughout the year that um, we're a family gathering, and when families gather, you know, we send the kids so in, for instruction at the teaching time so they can learn and know and, and, and fellowship with other kids, but, but they also belong with the adults. Right? They also belong at the, the grown-up table, which I'm just now kind of allowed to sit at, you know? And so this morning, it's almost akin to saying, um, everyone's at the grown-up table today for dinner, and, and you're going to hear the same stories, and we're going to have the same time of, of talking. And, and this morning's sermon, I've, I've kind of kept you in mind. Um, and so I think you'll be able to learn some things that are important. And uh, I hope that if you, you tune in and, and listen well, um, you'll learn something about, about God and about what it means to be a follower uh, of Jesus. And I hope I don't bore you. The, last week, uh, as we were marching through Exodus, we dealt with internal problems among God's people. God's people had grown tired of trusting God, right? The Lord in this pillar of smoke and fire had, had led them to a place where there was no water, and they were exhausted, they were thirsty, and so they bring a, a formal charge, a formal complaint against Moses, thus against God, saying, we need water to drink, and, and you've led us out here, you've brought us out of Egypt just so that we might die. But once again, in his grace, God provided. Moses lifted his staff, struck the rock, and miraculously drew water from it, water that brought not simply refreshment, but life. We considered how New Testament writers understood that this rock prefigured Christ, right? right? Christ was struck, and from his side has flown a river of blood and everlasting water, water that brings everlasting Life. The rock in our text last week, like so much of Exodus, is a foretaste of deliverance, of ultimate deliverance in Jesus the Messiah. This week we turn our attention to two particular passages in Exodus 17 and Exodus 18 that Molly eloquently read for us. A fight with the Amalekites and Moses' reunion with his family, particularly this encounter and conversation with his father-in-law. I think there's a shift somewhat in the narrative here, particularly as we sort of wind down the battle with the Amalekites and look towards um, the conversation with Moses' father-in-law. You'll see in the text, uh, I, I enjoy history. Um, the battle with the Amalekites, American history is what I know most about because in America we only really teach American history, and I think it's one of the great problems we have. We need to know our world's history more. But there's the, the War of 1812, right, where there's like the, the United States has fought this revolutionary war, and, and we're this fledgling nation, and we're trying to, you know, get our feet off the ground. Uh, and then another war comes, and if you lose that war, then the first war doesn't really mean anything. And I think this sort of battle with the Amalekites, Amalekites is like slid into the narrative. And it's, it's almost like this war of 1812 for us to understand, right? It's like this, this, this war that if, if they've escaped Egypt and all of these people throughout the process from Egypt who have tried to kill them, and then you, you get to this place at the base of this mountain and the Amalekites come and they kill you, well, why, why did it matter that you escaped the Egyptians? Like, it's great, but, but you lost, so there's this sort of dealing with external enemies, external opponents that kind of 
comes to some degree of finality in our text this morning, at least a little bit. And then we begin looking towards the formation of Israel, looking towards the formation of God's people. And in the coming weeks, we'll start to see things like the Ten Commandments, like the law given at Sinai. Much of the stuff, right, that we associate with Exodus that we see in movies or hear about is behind us. Uh, Even though a lot of text remains, a lot of these great um, events we've already considered. And much of what remains is almost, if we just kind of read through it, a bit mundane in contrast to what we've read. But much of what remains is significant. Much of what remains deals with the formation of God's people. I think we could say that Moses points to Jesus and Israel points to the church. Moses prefigures Jesus, and Israel prefigures the church. And in our text this morning, I think we can start to see what it takes to be a healthy community of faith, or rather to form a healthy community of faith. I think we'll see three things. Write these down, especially res kids, if you've got your papers. One, they have experienced and rely on God's power. They have experienced and rely on God's power. God's people have experienced and rely on God's power. Two, they bear gospel witness. They bear gospel witness. We could say that simply this. They tell good news. They tell good news. God's people tell good news. And finally, three, they share ministry. They share ministry. God's people share ministry. I pray this morning that as we work through this text, as we work through these three themes that we see, the Lord would continue molding us into a healthy community of faith. The title of this morning's message is Forming a Good News People. Let's look in chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Who are these guys, right? Before we go any further, who are the Amalekites? Well, they trace their lineage back to Esau. Amalek was a descendant of Esau. They were a nomadic people who survived, at least partly, historians think, off of attacking and plundering other peoples. If you'd like a fun fact, the Amalekites had domesticated the camel and used its swiftness for surprise attacks. So the Amalekites weren't necessarily a nation as as large as as Egypt, but they were nonetheless much better at fighting than the Israelites would be, much more experienced, and they had much more of a plan. We're not sure why they attacked. They lived in sort of that northern Sinaitic Peninsula, so maybe this nation wandering around was a threat to them. Maybe they just wanted to plunder them and take all that they had, but I digress. Let's look at verses 8 through 10, or 9 through 10. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joseph, or Joshua, I'm going way back there. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. When I read this, I, I think if I'm Joshua, I'm like, man, Moses, you really got the good end of that deal. Like, I'm going up on the hill, 
You can go down and fight, you know. But nonetheless, Moses goes up on the hill because he has sort of a plan in mind. He's starting to learn something about what life with God is like. And he sends Joshua and a bunch of able men down into the field to fight with these warrior peoples. Now, let's look in verses 11 through 13. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. <laughs> I like that sort of burst of humanity in there, right? It's like this supernatural spiritual thing. Like Moses' hands are rough and they're winning the battle. He puts them down, the Amalekites are winning. But Moses' hand got tired. <laughs> but Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. The first thing I want us to note is that the battle is sort of happening on two planes here, right? There is a physical battle that's going on, an unmistakable physical battle, right? I mean, Joshua has swords, and the men have swords, and they're fighting. They're not going out and, like, zapping people or, like, praying them down like Benny Hinn style. You know, like, they're not, they're not doing that. There, there's an actual fight going on. And then Moses on the top of the hill with some of these leaders of the people are, are, are going to great lengths, like, for all day, his hand to be raised to the heavens. Right? They may be overmatched on the ground, but what's happening on the hill more than makes up for what's happening on the ground. Right? Moses, the text doesn't really spell it out. It, it does in a, in a moment at the very end, right, when it's talking about, um, in verse 16, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Right? There's this idea that, that what Moses is doing is acting as this intercessor. Right? This, that means this one who goes between. This one who goes between God's people and God. And he's standing in that place, right? putting his hands up to God and, and demonstrating the fact that God is their strength. He is, in a very real way, lifting his hands in dependence on a power greater than himself. It might not say he was praying, but certainly he was praying. He was trusting God for a victory that Joshua could not bring on his own. And that trust is verified and not nullified by the actual fighting of Joshua. Right? Faith without works is dead. Works don't create faith, but works can reveal faith. Meaning, if Joshua doesn't believe that they have a chance, he's not going to go put his life on the line. If Moses doesn't believe that God's going to deliver his people, he's not going to send Joshua to die and stand up there and just hold his hands up. The trust that they have in God to provide for them, the trust that they have in God to sustain them, to deliver them from these invaders, is verified by the fact that there is actually a physical battle going on that they should not have won by the world's standards. That trust is verified by the stuff that they did. Is our trust in God verified by the way that we live God's people experience God's power. God's people experience God's power. Let's read the rest of this little section. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. It's one of the first times he's actually said, write this down. Like, 
Write this down. Remember this. Write this as a memorial in a book and re recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. That word that we translate as banner has militaristic uh, meaning where it's used mostly in antiquity. It means this sort of place where we, we regroup, we rally, we receive instruction. When you see your people's banner, you know that's where you can go and reconnect with your people, rally, receive instructions from your leader, and go. The Lord, Moses says, is our banner. He is where God's people regroup. He is where God's people rally, and he is where God's people receive instruction, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So my question then is this. That's that community of faith. We're a community of faith that comes much, 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 much later in the space and time continuum. So how does it apply to us? Well, let's think about it for a moment, right? They've been delivered, but they're still marching to the promised land. If you're a Christian, that's kind of where you are this morning. Right? You've been delivered, like you've called on the name of the Lord, you've been saved, you've been changed, you've been delivered. You're a different person than you were. You've been defeated, sin's been defeated, and it's, it's not going to come back and win. Like Jesus won, period, end of story. But we're still kind of marching to the promised land, in a sense. We're still kind of going to where we are ultimately going. And while we're walking, the Amalekites and their swift-footed camels might not be chasing us down, but someone way stronger, way tougher, and way badder than the Amalekites is, and that's our spiritual enemy himself. Right? The text teaches us that our spiritual enemy is like a prowling, like a roaring lion seeking those to kill and devour. Paul reminds us in Galatians 6, a text that uh, I went in with some of our guys at FCA this week. Paul reminds us of the spiritual battle going on around us. And I think this morning as we gather as God's people, right, out there is, is the world. And, and when we gather here, we're like an outpost of the kingdom. We're a bunch of uh, weary travelers who are going together to this place. And each of us, while we're living in the world, we've been attacked by this enemy time and time again. And, and here we come, and the enemy can attack us in here, but here we come and we remember that things aren't just as they seem. That there's a spiritual enemy who wants you to fall back into lust, who wants you to fall back into alcoholism, who wants you to fall back into depression and desperation and fear and self-loathing, and all these things. There's an enemy who's like actively wanting your life to get worse because he hates you and he wants the worst for you. And knowing that enemy exists and empowers us to fight by the Spirit in us to say, no, I'm going to fight the fight of faith and resist the fight of the enemy that's coming my way. We fight sin like Joshua with everything we've got, every ounce of our effort. But like Joshua, our hope is that the Lord would supernaturally do something and that something that our effort could not do on its own. Jesus is a true and better Moses who intercedes for us while we're like Joshua down there fighting, right? Picture Joshua down there fighting. And then think of yourself like going out of here and going to work or going to school or going wherever you're going and dealing with all this fighting from the enemy. Dealing with all the temptations to 
to love the wrong things and do the wrong things that are going to come your way over the course of this week. And then picture Jesus like Moses with his hands raised, right, interceding on your behalf. We've experienced God's power in Christ. Christians, we depend on God for everyday living. Even the most boring Christian life is absolutely impossible without God. Anyone can do good things and praise God when they do. But it takes the Spirit of God to make us lovers of God instead of lovers of self. Our problem is not primarily that we do bad. Our problem is primarily that we love wrong. We sin because we love sin, not because we just want to do it. And it takes the Holy Spirit of God to come into your life and begin to reorient the things that you love. And it is a supernatural miracle. It is like a Red Sea parting miracle. It's like an Amalekite defeating miracle. It's like a water from a rock miracle. It's like a plagues kind of miracle when a sinner like me who loves pretty much himself can begin to love someone else. It's a miracle when a bunch of people who are self-seeking people come together and say, you know what, we're not going to seek our own good. We're going to seek the good of others for the glory of God. That is something that's impossible. That is something that we have experienced God's power in. We are people, even if we're the most boring, lamest of people, we are people who have experienced God's power, and that is neither boring nor lame. Jesus is our banner. Jesus is where we regroup, where we rally, and where we receive instructions for life and our spiritual fight. So if we are a people who have experienced God's power, we are a people who tell of God's power. Look with me in chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to move through this relatively quickly. And so there are some details, the timeline, we're not exactly sure of. At some point, Moses' wife and kids had gone back uh, to be with, with her family. I don't know if this is out of uh, safety concerns, logistical concerns, but there was some plan. Uh, perhaps they're monitoring the progress uh, of, of Moses and, and the people of Israel to reconnect uh, someday soon. So let's look at that. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he'd sent her home, along with her two sons. The one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God at Mount Sinai. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Let's stop right there. Just a couple things. Like I said, at some point, Moses and his family temporarily split up with a plan to soon reconnect Note a couple of things. Note the significance of the names, right? Moses names his kids based on how God has acted towards him. Interesting thing to point. Note the respect and deference that Moses shows for his father-in-law. He loves his father-in-law. He honors his father-in-law. Now, 
Let's also consider who his father-in-law is. We know he's a Midianite priest, meaning he's a pagan priest. He's not a member of God's family. If Moses can bend down and kiss his father-in-law, shouldn't we love and serve our Jewish neighbors, our Muslim neighbors, our no-faith neighbors? I think so. And it's a side point, but people change where people are loved and accepted to a point. So Moses honors his father-in-law. He loves his father-in-law. He bows down and kisses his father-in-law. They ask of each other's welfare, and they go into the tent to talk. Moses' love for his father-in-law has been countercultural through the ages, even though I have a great one, right? Yeah. My man, Terry. Verses 8 and 9. Let's see what happens in this tent, right? With um, Never thought I'd mention Terry in a sermon. That's kind of cool. Uh, verses 8 and 9. Let's get this train back on the tracks quick. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. In verses 8 through 9, if you want to narrow it down to two words, I would say Moses shares. Moses shares what God has done. He shares the good news of it. Jethro rejoiced in verse 9. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Moses shares, quite simply, without a whole bunch of difficult languages or difficult words, he shares, right, what, what God has done for his people, how God has delivered them from the Egyptians. And Jethro hears this and he rejoices. He's glad about it. In verses 8 and 9, Je or Moses shares. And then in verses 10 through 12, Jethro believes. A healthy community of faith is a good news community, is a gospel witness. A healthy community of faith shares, even with a Midianite priest father-in-law, the good news of God's deliverance. In verses 10 through 12, Jethro believes. Listen to what he does. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Look at that. He said, now I, a Midianite priest, know that the Lord, your Lord, your God, is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Look at the holiness of eating bread before God. When we do the Lord's Supper next week, like we do every week, you can find the roots of that feast, even in this Eucharistic language. Jethro blesses the Lord. Jethro praises the Lord. Jethro honors the Lord as the one who's above all God. Jethro worships God by bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. And Jethro, Jesco, Jesco White, I don't know what I'm saying. Jethro 
even at the end of this, breaks bread in community with God's people. This is the story of a pagan priest coming to worship the one true God, and this is God's design for his people. We are a good news people who tell of God's deliverance. And my question is, if people aren't believing, are we sharing? How many of us would come to church next week if we had to stand in front of our brothers and sisters and tell people how many people we shared Jesus with? We would set a low attendance record, and we've had a lot of those. We are a good news people who tell of God's deliverance. It's who we've been from the very beginning, and it's who we'll be until that deliverance is finalized. And my my question to you isn't to shame you. My question to me isn't to shame you. Am I being faithful to share the good news of Jesus' deliverance? Whenever we take our trips to Madhya Pradesh, one of the things that I love for our members to hear and see going on when we're gathering with our missionaries is to hear the way that they talk about their daily activity. And the word shares, the word shares comes up so many times. Who'd you share with today? Or I was uh, at the cafe and I shared with so-and-so. Or I was at this place and I shared with so-and-so. It's just a part of their language that they shared with them. And we'd be like, shared what? You know what I mean? Like there's this understood um, sort of component of being a missionary. You're just someone who shares the good news with people. I think we can learn from folks like that on trips like that. It's why we take them, what a missionary ethic can look like in the everyday stuff of life. We share our lives with people. We share meals with people, even if they're Midianite priest father-in-laws. And we share the good news of God's deliverance. As we share the good news of God's deliverance, we think on two sort of levels. God's big story of deliverance, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? That this, God created everything. Everything fell. Jesus came to restore everything the way it is meant to be. And one day God will reign over the world as it's intended to be. That's sort of the macro story. And the micro story is how that matters in my life. Consider God's big story of deliverance, but consider God's story of deliverance in me. When you're sharing the good news of Jesus, you tell about a big God who's saving the world from its sin, who will one day end all suffering and, all, and judge all nations. And you consider how you came to faith and the way he did that, which is through the cross of Jesus Christ. A healthy community of faith is a gospel witness. When we lose our gospel witness, we are no longer on the path to becoming a healthy community of faith. Finally, let's look in chapter 18, verses 13 through 26. Um, I'm not going to read this whole text, but what happens in the rest of the text, you heard it from Molly earlier, is this conversation between Moses and his father-in-law. And of course, his father-in-law's got some ideas for him to consider. He's got some advice for the young whippersnapper who's not young anymore. Um, he's got some things he thinks he should do. So he, they wake up uh, the next day, and Moses sits down to do his normal, um, you know, day's work. Verse 13 says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Like all day long, Moses is just hearing from these hordes of people who come to him from, uh, from the congregation. 
Moses' father-in-law, he's probably sitting back watching this whole thing. Can you believe that, young? Can you believe that, you know? He's watching him. What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? Why are you sitting by yourself up there and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses responds, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. I decide between one person and another. I make known the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law in verse 17 says to him, what you're doing is not good. At this point, if you're Moses, you, you could be two things. You could be humble or you could be arrogant. It's like, oh, thank you, Jethro, for showing up when you did. But I don't know if you know this, but like we just escaped Egypt. And I kind of did that. I led us across the Red Sea. I led us through the plagues. God's talking to me. I don't think he's talking to you. And so we're going to do things my way, right? That's how Moses could have taken this if he were to be an arrogant, self-centered, self-absorbed leader. Or he could be a humble leader, a listener first. And thankfully, he chooses that route. Verse 19, his father-in-law says, Obey my voice, I'll give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the ways in which they must walk and what they must do. Verse 21, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, right? So big groups, hundreds, smaller groups, fifties, smaller groups, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they can bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it'll be easier for you, and they'll bear the burden with you. Moses, in many ways, is shepherding his people, and even this, if he's doing it alone, would, would wear Moses out. Moses would not be able to sustain what he's doing if he's going to be the only one doing it. So how does this translate to us? Well, in many ways, as I said, Moses is sort of the shepherd of his people, a whole, whole bunch of them. He's encouraged to send out a bunch of faithful leaders and sort of multiply the task of leading God's people. So how do we think about this in our life how do we think about this in our church? When church governance, we talk about a plurality of qualified pastors, right? We have two of us who are elders of this congregation, and two is a good size for where we're at right now. We have servant leaders who serve and help make sure our, our people are, are healthy and we're walking uh, with Christ. But I want to get beyond church governance, and I want to think about church life in general. And I think there's an important principle that we're learning here is that God's design for his nation is not for it to be one that exalts Moses, but one in which Moses serves all people. God's design is not for there to be a bunch of spectacular leaders. In fact, the leaders he tells them to appoint are just like faithful men. It's not like the best looking men, thank the Lord. It's the most faithful men. It's the most trustworthy men, men who hate a bribe. Take these men, Put them over people accordingly. Because ministry, and I'll define ministry in a second, because it's a word we use and don't define. Ministry is not just to be done by a couple people. It's to be done by 
a whole bunch of people. And when we look backwards at this text through the lens of the New Testament, we know that God had in mind for this church to be a kingdom of priests. That all of us have access to God and all of us have access to people. And that it's through each and every one of us that the Lord ministers to a watching world. Ministry is done by normal people in normal life. We are obsessed with building impressive churches rather than deploying people for ministry. And what do I mean by ministry? What it means subconsciously when I say the word is a vocational subculture. That's what it means to me and many of you. I'm called into ministry, or, oh, I'm going to join the ministry. Or when you switch jobs from working at Kroger to working at a church, all of a sudden you're in ministry. There is a great theology for vocational ministry, but that's not what we're getting into today. Today we're reminded that ministry is simply the noun of the verb to minister, to minister. And what does it mean to minister? It just means to attend to needs. It just means to attend to needs. If that's true, and if ministry is not just this subculture of like 20 to 35-year-olds who look a certain way, if ministry is more than a subculture, and ministry is about ministering, and ministering is about serving people's needs, then ministry is for all of us. Ministry is about ministering to people. It's not about getting your paycheck from a nonprofit or a church. It's not about building the right platform for yourself or your brand. It's not about gaining the right audience. It's not about having a title, simply having a title, in your church. It's not about reading the right books and reading about the right, reading the right blogs. Ministry looks like caring about people. Ministry looks like listening to people who think no one cares. It looks like being present for people when they think everyone has left them. It looks like caring when no one else cares. It looks like embracing where you are instead of wishing things were different. It looks like loving people that you don't want to love. It looks like serving the church without caring how that position makes you look to the pastor or the other people. It looks like serving your neighbor if they say thank you or if they don't. Ministry looks like being present. Ministry looks like caring. And my job as your lead shepherd is not to draw you out of your life and take you to conferences with me once a quarter, but my job is to unleash you to live Christianly in the everyday stuff of life. And frankly, we're only just now learning how to do that. Our church culture trains us to be customers and consumers, but we have to fight that current and learn how to be ministers. 
I just am convinced, and worship team, you guys can come on up as we wind to a close. 12.08, I did okay, went a little longer than I wanted to. I'm just convinced that 12 ministers, and we have, could have a lot more than that, will make a bigger impact than 2,000 customers. Church, you probably know this, but you aren't saved to be sidelined. God doesn't, God's plan for your life, I don't know fully what it is, but this is what it's not. It's not that you would hear the gospel, come to resurrection, and buy an I Love Mason t-shirt. Right? It's not that you would become this huge fan of resurrection. Right? Facebook has this thing now where if you share a lot of a certain team, you become like a top fan of that team. So if like you share a bunch of like the Cincinnati Reds who got rained out yesterday and we went to the game and they got rained out and I'm really still salty about it, but I digress again. If I shared a lot of Cincinnati Reds stuff, then I would have this like little star beside my name that's like top fan of the Cincinnati Reds, which I am a top fan of the Cincinnati Reds. I'm not interested in top fans of resurrection. I'm interested in servants of God from resurrection. I'm interested in saying, how can we learn, not just to say, hey, you got a great church, you should come to it, but hey, in my church, we can learn and grow together how to be ministers in the everyday stuff of life, and you can develop a relationship with God that will sustain you when nobody's watching. Because I think most ministry, most good ministry, you never get a plaque for. You never get paid for. No one ever knows your name. Most ministry happens where no one is watching. Most ministry happens when you're caring for someone on their deathbed and you just sit beside them and you just make eye contact with them. Most ministry happens when you have that kid in your class who you think might be biologically related to Satan. <laughs> but you love that kid and you're patient with that kid. Because God created that kid. And you might be the only person in his life who loves him and who's patient with him. Ministry looks like, I'll even throw some church stuff in there. Ministry looks like coming to church to be a greeter, and you don't get paid for that. You get up a little earlier, and if not very many people come, you just kind of stand there and wave at whoever comes. But you're serving as a point of contact. The first person, someone who might be skeptical about church, about God, meets. And in that moment, you're ministering. It's not spectacular. It's not flashy. You're not going to get to speak at a conference. But it matters. Ministry looks like being faithful as a husband, as a wife, as a single person, as a son, as a daughter as a member of a local church. A healthy community of faith is a community of God's power. We've experienced his deliverance, and we will one day ultimately experience that when Christ returns. A healthy community of faith is a gospel witness. We're good news people. That good news has formed us. That good news shapes us, and that good news is what we're all about. 
That good news is the first thing off our lips because that good news is the first thing in our heart. And God's people do God's work. And my question for us this morning is, are we doing these three things? Are we experiencing God's power? Are we sharing God's story? And are we doing God's work where people see it and where they may not see it? I want to make the case that if we're living into these three things, we're imperfect, we make mistakes, we'll make mistakes, but we're moving in the right direction. You're not saved to be sidelined. You're not my cheerleader. I and our pastors are your equippers. And when we begin to believe that, we can make a massive difference in our city even if the rest of the evangelical world never really cares, we exist in this old theater in the middle of a dying city. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We've experienced your power in Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose that we might know you and that we might be freed and delivered from an enemy far more serious than the Amalekites. Father, we're in a fight against sin, and we get drowsy. Forgive us when we get drowsy and we forget that the enemy wants to dull our spiritual senses and, and decrease our sense of urgency. Lord, help us be a gospel-shaped and gospel-sharing people who tell your story, what you've done in Christ, who tell our story, how you've transformed our lives. And Lord, sustain us to do your work in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our jobs, wherever we may be. Help us be ministers of the gospel, leading with love and service and every chance we get, sharing the good news of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, why he matters to every single man, woman, boy, and girl who lives on this planet. Sustain us through difficult days. Sustain us through trying days. Sustain us through obscurity, Father, and help us embrace it. May we decrease so that you might increase and do a mighty work in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.